Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live here from the Calm Radio Studios on Aranda Country here in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on Aitken FM here in Ubuntu Alice Springs and also online at our website, so that's karma.com.au. Today is, of course, uh, Monday. It's the start of the week. It's the 27th of May, 2019. I'm your host for the program, Kyle Dowling, and I'll be taking you up until 12 o'clock today. Well, coming up on Strong Voices, uh, this week does mark National Reconciliation Week, a time to learn and share culture and history and achievements to help move forward as a whole. This week's theme is Grounded in Truth, Walk Together with Courage. To discuss Reconciliation Week, Karen Mundine, CEO of Reconciliation Australia, will be joining us on the program. Also, the Northern Territory's Corrections Commissioner, Scott McNan, will be discussing the alarming rates of Aboriginal incarceration in the NT, which he says has the worst rate of incarceration and the second highest rates of imprisonment of Aboriginal people. And finally, last weekend, 16 passionate uh, young Territorians came together in Darwin for the NT Youth Roundtable meeting. Uh, one of the members of from that roundtable story uh, will be discussing changes she would like to see and uh, some of the work the roundtable is doing. We're of course going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island news from across the country as well. Hey mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio 8 FM this Monday morning. We're going to head into our first story of the program now. As we mentioned at the top of the program, this week does mark National Reconciliation Week for 2019. Karma Zarina Walker recently spoke with Karen Mundine, the CEO of Reconciliation Australia, who uh, spoke to us from Canberra as they celebrate Reconciliation Day. A big welcome to Karen Mundine, the CEO of Reconciliation Australia. Good morning, Karen, and thank you for joining me this morning. Good morning, Lorena, and thank you for having me. Are you able just to tell us who's your mob and where you come from? So I'm Bundjalung from northern New South Wales, up near the Queensland border. Mountain people, but I grew up in Sydney on uh, Gadigal country. So, yeah, I've had the best of both worlds. Today we are celebrating National Reconciliation Week 2019 for Australia and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It is still relevant. Why, why do you think people should really take this day in and celebrate it? At the heart of reconciliation, it's all about our relationship, our relationship as First Nations people, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this country and other Australians. And if we want to have a better future and a better outcome, we need to work on that relationship. So that's what National Reconciliation Week is about. It's an opportunity for all of us as Australians to come together to talk about our relationship and to talk about 
some of the good stuff, some of the bad stuff, but also how or what are we going to do differently to create better future for all of us. The finding from the most recent Australian Reconciliation Barometer, including the following, which is the one third of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been verbally and racially abused in the past six months and six out of the ten Australians have never met an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person. What do you think about those findings? So it doesn't surprise me at all. The other thing that the barometer also said is that 90% of Australians think that the relationship between us is important. So that gives me hope. But what the one in three figure or stat reminds us is that we are far from there. We are far from a reconciled Australia. And that as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we still face a number of challenges. So we need to get our relationship better. We need to figure out ways of doing things differently that puts Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the heart of who we are as Australians, but also values us and what we bring to the table. This year's Reconciliation Week theme is uh, grounded in truth. Why is truth uh, an important part of our history to be told, you know, for the wider Australian community? Well, as you would well know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we've been long calling for a comprehensive truth-telling process uh, in this country to talk about those colonial period and that that history. And at the heart of any relationship, we have to have that based on trust. And any trusting relationship has to be grounded in truth. So this is an opportunity for us to come together, talk about those truths, to understand what is important to us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also what is important for all Australians to understand who we are, where we've been, where we are today, the things that continue to impact who we are today. But more importantly, what are we going to do different as we move forward? You know, the difficult thing for us as well is like always hearing, you know, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, need to forget and move on. But we can't, you know, it's embedded in us that intergenerational, you know, trauma that we we have experienced and it still continues today. But like you mentioned, you know, just having to tell the general population and, and listen and learn about our history as well and culture. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, the thing that makes me, um, gives me hope for all of this is uh, our reconciliation barometer also said that 80% of all Australians believe it's important to undertake a formal truth-telling process. So we see and hear more and more Australians want to know the stories of how this nation was founded, want to understand what has happened over the last 200 plus years and that relationship with First Nations people. And more and more people want to, in understanding it and knowing what happened, to change things because we also know that it's only when we're all together that we're able to move forward. And also like for us, well even in the school systems, I mean we should be able to, um, you know, have our language and culture put out through our schools Uh, it is happening around the country in some areas. Make it compulsory to have all Australians learn a little bit more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. Absolutely and I mean I think that that's just, I think we'll all become richer for it. Like we don't lose out if you learn a little bit more. What are I suppose more different ways for Australians who want to be involved or you know get themselves you know more knowledge and knowing about uh, what is happening around the country when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people especially during these weeks of Reconciliation Week and also NAIDOC. So head to our website reconciliation.org.au there's lots of resources there there's lists of events that are happening this week so people can find out what's happening near them but also there's kits and information about how do you start a a conversation where to go uh, where to meet people. You mentioned that that figure that not many uh, Australians have met an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. I would say down south they probably didn't know they met them. But the point is there are lots of opportunities to learn about our culture, to learn about our stories. And when I say our stories, I mean Australia's stories. There's lots of movies, there's lots of books, there's art exhibitions. So I would really encourage people 
to get out there, get to an event. You'll get to meet lots of Aboriginal and Torres Strait people that way. But also start a brave conversation. Be courageous. Let's talk about Uluru Statement. Let's talk about the history of the place where you live and where that. How is that celebrated or is that celebrated in your community? And Karen, just for you, who are some of the people, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that inspire you, keeping you inspired? I was very lucky to have some very strong Aboriginal women in my family. So my mum, my aunties and grandmother. And and they certainly, although they've they've passed now, they certainly uh, made me into the woman that I am today. And they certainly gave me strength uh, to do what I do. And then there are so many amazing people, and I have to say particularly women that have been in my life, whether it's Aunty Jackie Huggins, the late Evelyn Scott from the old Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, Linda Burney, Patrick Dodson, who I also worked with in the Reconciliation days. So there are so many great role models out there. Um, but I think always it's the people that you see close to you the most um, that make the biggest difference. Uh, you're down in Canberra. So can you just tell us yeah, about the day and um, yeah, what you're looking forward to? Yeah, so it's Reconciliation Day here. Uh, the ACT government has made it a public holiday for reconciliation, which I just think is amazing. There is reconciliation in the park, so there's there's a whole heap of stalls, there's yarning tents with elders, there's opportunities to meet Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We've also got Uncle Johnny Huckle, who sings up a good storm and tells a good yarn, and the Marindas later this evening. So it's going to be a great day that I hope all Canberrans will turn out for. It's a little bit rainy, but uh, I'm hoping it's going to clear up and it'll be a fantastic day regardless. Yeah, really awesome to hear that though, that it is now, you know, a public holiday. So that's awesome. Yeah, 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 indeed. I just want to say a big thank you to Karen Mundine for joining us here on the Carmen Network. So thank you very much. Thanks, Lorena. Yes, that was the Reconciliation Australia CEO, Karen Mundine, speaking with Karma's Lorena Walker about uh, National Reconciliation Week. We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. Hey, this is Cathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio 8 FM, and now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country segment. Very happy to say that I'm joined in the studio by Carmen Serena Walker and Paul Wiles. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, listeners. Well, Lorena, we'll start with you. I understand you have a story this morning in regards to climate change in the Torres Strait. Yeah, uh, for Torres Strait Islanders, it is a crisis, and it uh, uh, this is uh, like a national um, emergency, I guess, uh, of the washing away of homes, infrastructure and cemeteries. And, um, yeah, it says that, yeah, they're they're lodging a climate change case with the United Nations Human Rights Committee against the Australian federal government. Um, Yeah, due to... um, yeah, living on, uh, being remote, but also being on island, like living remotely on island. Um, things are, yeah, not looking good for the mob up there in Torres Strait. Um, with yeah, some of their homes, like they mentioned, have been uh, the water rising, and yeah, homes, cemeteries, and infrastructure being uh, affected. Obviously, very concerning. You know, we've that was, I think, a big part of this election in terms of which governments were going to move forward with any sort of climate policy and things like that. Obviously, something that a lot of people are, are wanting to have addressed. Obviously, you know, it doesn't matter if you're living out even here in Central Australia. As we know, we've seen some pretty severe summers recently. We've had a lot of fires recently as well. Yeah, look, the whole issue around uh, climate change, global warming, um, 
obviously uh, governments, Labor and Liberal, have a very different take on um, what what is causing global warming and climate change. But it's definitely happening. Uh, I don't think there's any denial that, uh, you know, we're seeing um, rising tides like in the Torres Strait and other areas of the Pacific. You know, there are other islands that are similarly being um, washed away. Um, ice is melting in the polar regions. Uh, we're having longer hot summers. But the whole issue around helping the Torres Strait Islanders, I think, is uh, one that uh, really does need to be looked at. Uh, I mean, there have been, uh, over the last couple of years, um, I don't really think the what is happening there has been taken seriously by Australian governments um, mm. to the extent that uh, when, when we're seeing cemeteries being washed away... Um, Obviously, there's, uh, you know, huge emotional uh, issues that are going on. And if people are losing their homes, I mean, this was happening on the Sunshine Coast at Queensland. I think something would be happening. So uh, whether or not, um, you know, this uh, new government is prepared to look at it. Um, obviously, the the new uh, federal minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, Ken Wyatt, um, will be very keen i'm sure to uh, be engaged in a conversation with the torres strait islander community yeah. and hopefully ken wyatt um will put a different light on the issue and um you know get it to where it should be at the moment yeah. i just want to quickly mention it it is the first time the australian government has been taken to the un for their failure to take action on this so um yeah we can only wait and see what the outcome is of this yeah mm. Well, on to our next story, we'll go to you, Paul. What do you have for us this morning? OK, well, uh, more politics. Uh, of course, the federal election is over. Uh, Scott Morrison is the new Prime Minister and Ken Wyatt is. Uh, congratulations to Ken Wyatt, uh, a great achievement. The first Aboriginal man to be uh, appointed to the uh, portfolio, uh, to head the portfolio uh, of Indigenous Affairs, uh, the Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Labor had flagged it. Uh, well, the Liberal Coalition has beaten them to the punch and um, that will go down in the history books as a, uh, a Liberal achievement. The first Aboriginal uh, man or woman appointed to head up a department. Uh, so Ken Wyatt has kicked a number of goals. Um, the uh, first man um, elected uh, uh, going to... To the cabinet as the um, minister for uh, uh, indigenous health. Uh, now we've seen uh, the appointment as the uh, federal minister uh, for uh, indigenous peoples, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So, on that, uh, of course, this week is um, reconciliation week. So um, uh, the constitutional recognition issue again uh, has come up and uh, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison um, has uh, committed to getting an outcome on, on constitutional recognition uh, paving the way for a national discussion on the best way to achieve it but uh, the big catch from the coalition uh, he's given no time frame on how long the process might take the Sydney Morning Herald um, 
reports, Mr Morrison says his priorities for Indigenous Australians are to ensure that uh, Indigenous kids are in school and getting an education, that young Indigenous Australians are not taking their own lives and that there are real jobs for Indigenous Australians so they can plan their future with confidence like any other Australian. Um, these comments coincide with his appointment of West Australian MP Ken White as the country's first Indigenous Cabinet Minister with the title of the Minister for Indigenous Australians. So uh, we have put in a request for Ken White. Uh, obviously everyone uh, around the country is very keen to have uh, Ken White uh, and to hear what he uh, his his vision for the First Nations peoples. Um, we will uh, sit in the queue waiting to get to, to Ken Wyatt. Um, also, uh, Anthony Albanese, Al Albanese uh, that has been confirmed as well. Uh, there was some discussion about his name. Um, uh, it is Albanese, not Albanese. Um, so whether or not people will change that pronunciation. Albo, I think, is much easier. Um, but Albo is now the uh, leader of the Labor Party and uh, Albo will bring in uh, his supporters over the years. So there might be some um, toing and froing there with the shadow cabinet as well. So plenty going on in politics. Definitely. And I know a lot of conversations we've had just recently on Strong Voices, in fact, have been actually people touching on the importance of having a... a Aboriginal person within that role at the federal level being the, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Oh, it's a great breakthrough. I mean, um, you know, regardless of what side of politics, I mean, obviously a lot of people were disappointed that Labor didn't get up because Pat Dodson had been nominated as the Minister. But, uh, you know, credit to the Coalition. They've done the right thing. They've put Ken Wyatt in and uh, they, they will go down in history as the first party to appoint an Aboriginal person in the role of the federal minister. Uh, for Indigenous Affairs. So uh, congratulations to Ken Wyatt. And definitely as well on the other point as well, I think definitely an important journey ahead and, and hopefully a lot of Aboriginal voices are heard on the matter of, you know, the uh, recognition within the Constitution and that voice within the Constitution. As we know, there had been some concerns about, uh, you know, the, the time frame of that and making mm. sure that that works with the Aboriginal people in terms of, you know, that's not rushed or anything like that as well. Yeah. Look, I think um, um, constitutional recognition isn't a high priority for the coalition. The appointment of Ken Wyatt, though, I think um, Ken uh, has a long history um, working in, in uh, the health portfolio and uh, um, a very experienced um, bureaucrat. So he will bring a very different take into the role of uh, of the Federal Minister for uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And uh, again, uh, when we can uh, get to Ken and have that um, talk with him, uh, I'm sure uh, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will be very interested to hear what he has to say. Yeah. Well, on that note, Paul, Dorina, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Shawnee Tilbury and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo! Yes, and welcome back to Strong Voices. Well, as we reported, the Northern Territory Corrections Com Commissioner, Scott McNann, says the Territory is not in a good spot as far as the massive over-representation of Aboriginal people in its jails. Commissioner McNann says key statistical data says the Northern Territory has the worst rate of incarceration and the second highest rates of imprisonment of Aboriginal people. 
Commissioner McNan recently spoke with Karma's Paul Wiles. Since coming into post last October, I've identified very quickly about the, the over-representation of the Aboriginal prisoners in the system. Some 85% sitting within corrective services. So the recent report on government services, which is a report that crosses every single jurisdiction in Australia and provides key statistical data, evidences that the Northern Territory... Uh, has got the worst incarceration rate, it's got the second highest imprisonment rate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners, and we are not in a good spot. So what I've been doing since I came in last October is essentially working with a company called KPMG and and bringing about massive prison reform. Because it was quite clear for the data, and previous data, that what we're currently doing and what we've previously done doesn't work. So we need to change, and you're absolutely spot on with that. We need to do things differently. Uh, and, and essentially that's been the lead for me in terms of developing the wider reform project. So uh, early analysis from me, uh, gaps in service provision for uh, for prisoners within corrective services. So we're not getting the right programmes, we're not getting prisoners at the right time. The the focus for programmes and interventions is is the, the uh, long long uh, sentence prisoners uh, nearing the end of their sentences uh, and we're not doing a great deal with the short term population nor the remand population which is the mm. which is the churn and we need to deal with that so the reform that I've been, I've been working on uh, will bring about significant change uh, I've asked for greater um, greater focus on rehabilitative services I want a through care an indicated case management model uh, I want to bring NGOs into that through care model pick up prisoners pre-release so that might be things like NAJA, health uh, employability services uh, drug and alcohol services and pick prisoners up before they go uh, before they're released sorry uh, and give them a better better opportunity uh, moving back into the community so there's been quite a massive piece of reform that I've done Uh, just recently uh, presented to Treasury and I've also presented to Government and Cabinet uh, and I was about an hour and a half presenting to Cabinet on the need for change uh, and, and the blueprint and where I'm trying to take the organisation. Uh, and I've got to say, Paul, it was uh, very well received by Cabinet and I think I, I got some key messages across that something needs to be done. Uh, and to that extent, uh, I managed to get significant funding in the Corrective Services budget uh, this year uh, and Cabinet have now selected one of the models that I presented them to fully cost and develop uh, for consideration potentially for next year. So I can see huge positive uh, light at the end of the tunnel with this. I'm really excited about the whole thing. When we look at incarceration rates, uh, a lot of it revolves back to poverty. Poverty worldwide uh, is a major contributor to uh, incarceration rates of of many ethnic in particular societies. And it's no different here in Australia. Poverty is a major contributor. Now, their experience in prison, even though they're there for a crime, and often some of the crimes are are significant and serious crimes, they're given three meals a day, they're given a bed, they're in an environment where they're encouraged to better themselves and to be something different. Why can't we replicate that outside of prison? Again, another good question. So my my responsibility is to, to take 
take care of prisoners whilst in my custody and, and, I, and I think you're absolutely right uh, and custody presents a whole range of opportunities for, for prisoners that they may not get in community so a job and paid employment you mentioned the beds and, and healthcare services and dental services is a positive move forward the, the challenge that I see uh, coming in as a new commissioner is that I can do so much as a corrective services organisation but this is a holy government requirement uh, I have spoke to, to, to Cabinet and my Minister uh, on that uh, you know we need everybody pulling in the same direction so I, I'm clear on what my strategy is I'm clear on what my blueprint is I'm clear on how I'm trying to reduce reoffending and the strategies and interventions that will that will make that happen but we need a holy government approach. We need the police. We need the court system. We need the health system. Uh, we need employers to, to pull and have the same focus about reducing reoffending. And if we don't, we move at different tangents. You know, we move all over the place. And, and I think if we really focus and have the same strategy, we will better align ourselves. We'll have better utilisation of resources between organisations and agencies. And we have one focus. Scott, I'm, I'm sure uh, you'd be well aware again, what we have had historically is a very long connection of the First Nations either being outcasts on the fringes of society yep. or locked up in prison. Hmm. Now, again, if we're going to change anything, and as you've quite rightly um, suggested, it has to be a whole-of-government approach. And I'm sure you would have been to a number of communities and seen the problem that faces prisoners when they go back. Um, So while you have your role is to look after them in prison uh, and make sure that they acquire skills, maybe even uh, some basic education as as far as reading and writing and arithmetic, all that effort that goes in while they're in prison, if they can't put that to good use when they get out, Mm -hmm. if they go back to community, they're living in poverty, there's an expectation that they have to uh, deliver certain cultural things while they're there. Sadly, I mean, many of these have been in and out of prison since they were young kids. So from where they're sitting and they disconnect with their own culture, it's not easy for you to look after them while they're in there. Absolutely correct. We we are back on a number of strategies to try and address that. Uh, A a great example of of how we're trying to work harder and work with communities uh, is our Elders Visiting Programme. We had a a, a really good uh, two-day conference in Darwin last week and I did the opening address to the uh, to 50 or so elders for across the territory, uh, and that program is actually leading the edge. You know, I've had I've had great interest for other jurisdictions and how how that program works, and it brings elders for local communities and and uh, rural areas. <clears throat> Uh, really together uh, to work with, with, with prisoners from their communities in the prison service uh, and, and we bring elders into the, into the prisons we, we allow them to you know, freely talk to, to whoever they want uh, and really try to engage in that cultural journey for some of the prisoners because there was a great uh, quote actually at the, the elders visit uh, the elders programme last week the elders conference uh, and it was actually it wasn't until I, I thought about it but some some Aboriginal people have actually never seen the ocean, and I, I didn't. I didn't actually think about that until mm. because they live right in the middle of the, you know, the, the, the territory, and and some of them have never seen the ocean. And and the elders were talking about just you know getting some of these young people, young kids, and and taking them in day trips and 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 getting them, you know, identifying with their own culture. And and so it's a really whizzy program. Uh, and the two day forum was excellent. I listened to a lot of a lot of different um, strategies, a lot of different things that's happening. 
and it's just about joining up services. The other thing, just on your question, is that whilst I do a lot in prison, um, as I say, I'm also responsible for community corrections, probation and parole. And, and my staff do a really good job uh, out in communities. I did a road trip recently to Papania. Uh, so I understand, understand what, you, what, you, what you mean by the, the conditions that some, some Aboriginal people live in in the communities. Uh, and we're also working quite closely with the Aboriginal Justice Unit. Uh, and Leanne Liddell is, is, is kind of taking charge of that and that's working with local communities um, you know there's a lot of whizzy stuff happening we're, we're trying to think about changing policy uh, I want to stop uh, prisoners coming to prison uh, particularly those short term sentences uh, and I'm working on a range of strategies that, that will try and address that you know an, an example is why, why are we sending Aboriginal people to prison for six months because of a driving offence right mm-hmm. uh, we, could, we could deliver a driver's programme in the community supported by my staff or, or NGOs you know why are we sending pe- people with low level offences to prison where we could be delivering drug or alcohol intervention programmes in the community or domestic violence programmes you know there's a place for people who commit serious crime and that is prison but prisoners are sent to prison uh, as punishment, not for punishment, and that's, I'm quite clear on that. Sadly, across the country, uh, there's a massive over-representation now of particularly Aboriginal women who mm. haven't committed serious offences. Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is for unpaid fines that have mm. just spiralled out yeah. of yeah. out of control from a very early stage, an intervention, and then taking people in and educating them. Mm. The benefit to the community and the cost saving mm. to the community would be enormous. I've got a great NGO that's working with me just now as well. I'll, I'll do the plug for them. It's, it's the Women Worth programme and uh, they work with female Aboriginal prisoners in, in Darwin prison uh, and their success rate is absolutely phenomenal they pick them up you know, six months pre-release uh, they deliver a lot of programmes uh, in the prison, domestic violence programmes budget and finance life skill programmes and they then actually work with female prisoners uh, post-release for up to 12 months and get them accommodation so, so these are really smart programmes that will actually you know, give really tangible support when some of these vulnerable females move back into the community. Uh, but there's much to, much to do. You know, I've, I've got female prisoners sitting in the middle of male prisons. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm also looking at a blueprint strategy to, to look at maybe an infrastructure build for a female prison. So I want a, a female strategy, you know, a real focus on what, is, what do female uh, prisoners actually need. They've got unique needs, uh, and I don't think we're fully addressing it. And that is part of the wider prison reform as well. So, uh, But, yeah, I think too many people sent to prison for, uh, for, for low-level offences. We need to, need to look at alternatives to, to custody. Uh, I'd like to see, you know, females that are sitting in prison for six months having an electronic monitoring tag on them and actually with their, com- with their family in the community rather than sitting in prison. Mm. Because the, the cost uh, incarceration is, ex- uh, you know, is very, very high. I think I'm about $318 a day, uh, $116,000 a year to keep somebody in custody. Getting back to these um, programmes in community, I mean, the delivery of of that type of program obviously re- re- revolves around ongoing funding, and yep. we also know governments change every couple of years, and one government may have a different view mm. and a different take. So that's uh, something that is is ongoing. But do you think delivering programs that work in community 
on the understanding that it's um, bipartisan, that other mm. governments will continue to fund it. Um, mm. The programs that you're working on, I mean, do you see this as a, a breakthrough in, in how things have been done? I think so. I mean, funding is an issue because funding streams are either, you know, a year, three years or five years funding streams. And I've had a number of funding streams coming to uh, an end uh, in respect to our commit programme, for example. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to be funding some of that stuff. The, the reform project allows me to actually look at critical services and, and wrap it under the, the, the reform model and try and get that costed so that we've not got this three and five year funding issue but you know we can we can continue with service and that continuity service uh, but funding has been an issue it's an issue in every jurisdiction uh, it's making sure you get the right programs that are, re- that are evaluated properly uh, and that you know that actually makes a tangible difference and the Women in Worth program is a great example of that so I'm, I'm an advocate trying to you know, extend that funding as we, as we move forward One final question, what have you learnt? How is your journey making your thinking change? I've worked with Aboriginal people before and, and my role in, as a prison director in Brisbane so not at the same scale, I think the South East of Brisbane, I think the, the Aboriginal prison population there was in the region about 20% 21%. That moves up as you move up towards uh, the, the north of Queensland, where you're at Lotus Glen, for example, they sit about 60%, 62%. But coming out of the territory and having an 85% population is, uh, is uniquely different, and it brings a whole bunch of challenges. But what I have learned, the causal factors for crime in the Northern Territory are, are, are either alcohol or drug-related and, and, and orientate themselves towards domestic violence and violence with some of their partners. And you get some of these Aboriginal people off alcohol and drugs and get them treated properly. They, they are very compliant, they're a very compliant population uh, by comparison to some of the other prisoner populations I've dealt with uh, and I think I've got a, a real opportunity with that uh, in that if I get the right programmes, you know, under the reform project, get more interventions more counselling, more psychology services more drug and alcohol services I need to get interpretation services, we've got 104 languages in the Northern Territory and I'm delivering programmes in English, you know, and was sometimes Aboriginal people don't understand it, uh, so I need to do a lot of work in terms of translation We've got a great uh, a great project here in, in Alice Springs Prison. It's called iTalk, and we're actually we've got Aboriginal prisoners working with consultants uh, through iTalk and actually delivering and developing cultural stories through an electronic platform and a media platform. And, and some of these stories are hugely powerful, and they're actually speaking in language. And I know what I'm going to do with that is uh, there's a whole bunch of policies and procedures and issues about parole that prisoners don't understand. I'm going to get the Aboriginal prisoners in Alice Springs to actually develop an induction programme in language. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of innovative things we could do that that'll help that'll help the journey. But on the whole, uh, I think drugs, alcohol, domestic violence. Violence is a big issue and we need to address that and that's where I need to really focus my, uh, my targeted intervention. I did an opening address to the Bachelor Institute who are our education provider to the, the prisoner graduation ceremony. So I had 39 Aboriginal prisoners who graduated in Cert 1, Cert 2 and White Card uh, for a, a varying range of different, uh, different topics, construction, furniture making, visual arts, food handling, forklift, uh, engineering, uh, all vocational pathways in education it was just fantastic to see and then Quick Smart as our education programme there was a number of prisoners there had had graduated and, and seeing them with their gowns on uh, you know actually having a certificate of achievement uh, and a proper accredited certificate you know leading them to opportunities for employment but having 39 
prisoners there with big smiles on their faces, you know, female prisoners, male prisoners, and actually remand prisoners. You know, remands don't need to do anything, but they're actually taking it upon themselves to engage with education. And, and we had the deputy CEO for, uh, for Bachelor Institute there. We had uh, the University of New England there. And we had iTalk there. It was just a great celebration, and we presented the certificates. We got loads of great, nice photographs. So, so that's why I was I was down here yesterday, and uh, had a good chat with the prisoners. But uh, you know, education is a real issue for me, and I think uh, my, my my famous quote is, you know, education is a pillar, uh, a success, life success. Uh, and I think I've encouraged prisoners to not just stop at one qualification. You know, strive for the best and strive for the next qualification and get themselves better. But uh, having 39 people there yesterday that, that didn't have a qualification before they came into prison and they've now got a qualification is a great testament to what we're trying to achieve in correction. Yes, that was uh, Northern Territory Corrections Commissioner there, Scott McGann, speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We'll be going to our final story shortly, but we're going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back. This is Dan Sutton and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. Well, at the weekend, uh, 16 young, passionate Territorians came together for the Anti-Youth Roundtable's quarterly meeting in Darwin. The Youth Roundtable aims to be an avenue for young people to have their concerns and voices heard by the Northern Territory Government. Last Friday, I spoke with the uh, with 2019 Youth Roundtable member Pauline Papajour. Here's that chat now. First of all, just tell us a, a little bit about yourself, who you are, you know, where you're from, your mob. My mum's side of the family is from Chiwi Islands and my dad's side is from Daly River Ways. And um, I grew up in foster care, so I've been living around Darwin, recently graduated high school and now have a part-time job with the partner. Now, I understand you're a member of the uh, 2019 NT Youth Roundtable. How and why did you become involved? Um, well, from my foster mum, she's part of a foster care committee and she just came across that and so she pointed me in that direction. Initially, I was hoping to do like a action project. Throughout my life in the foster care system, I found some really odd and strange things that happened in the system and I just thought that this would like allow me to change these things, well, at least help improve stuff in the foster care system or stuff related to it. You were touching on a, a second ago about the action plan, wasn't it? Can, can you elaborate a little bit on that? So any member of the Youth Roundtable, whatever like they're passionate about, they can choose to do a project and where they might get the community involved and stuff like that. Obviously, one of the meetings is coming up this weekend. Uh, do we know what's sort of going to be dis- discussed this weekend? So we'll be uh, going through the actions for the rest of the year, as well as consulting with the um, different departments. And I understand that you've had one of these meetings previously in the year, if, if that's correct. And uh, what, can you detail the sort of things that you know the the group has been? Uh, covering in, in previous meetings and discussions, and in your opinion, how's that process been going for you? Last uh, meeting, we just got introduced to the whole NT Roundtable program and kind of had a more in-depth introduction. We got to know each other and um, connect also with um, Brianna, our coordinator. 
And how, how many members are a part of the, the roundtable? We originally had 17 members, but um, one uh, dropped out because of personal reasons, so there's 16 now. What has it been like for you so far to be a part of this, the anti-youth roundtable? Well, I found that the members are really nice and they can give you insight on the things that other youth are passionate about, like in the NT, which can like be an eye-opener because I find the foster care a problem, but then someone else would find uh, technology or something interesting and try to improve technology in the education system and stuff like that. Obviously, you mentioned in terms of your, you know, personal impact in terms of the foster care system and things like that. What are some of the other concerns that you have that you're seeing uh, impacting young people in your area and that you've noticed and, and would like to address or, you know, bring to the forefront? Well, I find that uh, crime in the NT really is a bad thing and that can impact not only me, but the community as well as a whole. And yeah, it's just really the behaviour of children or youth or young people. Talk to us about the importance of having something like the Anti-Youth Roundtable, you know, a process where young people from across the Territory can come together, they can discuss things like this, they can, you know, put forward that word from the communities in terms of the different things that they're seeing and and have identified and be able to, you know, help make that change. It's important to have the anti-youth roundtable so then youth kind of have a voice or say and kind of feel important because they're addressing like the things that they see in the community that that affects them and as well as the whole of Darwin or NP. And just finally, Pauline, for those who may be interested in getting involved in anti-youth roundtable, they may be passionate about, you know, changing some things or bringing some concerns from youth to the forefront. What would you say to them in terms of getting involved in the anti-youth roundtable? I would say that if you're passionate about something or if you see something that's troubling you or the community and you're really passionate about it, yeah, apply for the roundtable and that's a way that you can get your voice heard as well as implement a change, really. Well, on that note, uh, Pauline, thank you so much for taking your time out to speak with us on Calm Radio. Thank you. Yes, that was uh, Pauline Papadour there, a member of the 2019 NT Youth Roundtable, whose uh, 16 members met up in Darwin at the weekend. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for today. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. We'll, of course, be back the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12. Stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Strong Voices.